For another perspective on this fascinating case, I met with the patient's oncologist, Dr. Sosinski. This was a lady that I remember we were consulted, our medical oncology consult service was consulted, and the fellow called me and said, there's a middle-aged woman with non-small cell lung cancer on the pulmonary service, and they want us to come see her. They had done a transbronchial biopsy at that time. She had presented with increasing cough and shortness of breath. She had an x-ray that showed diffuse pulmonary nodules and interstitial sorts of things. It looked like, to me, a metastatic adenocarcinoma. So she had both lungs with tumors? Yeah. Yeah, and she was requiring three to four liters of oxygen. She was very limited with regard to her breathing capacity. This was a woman who would enjoy after dinner riding her bike for a couple miles, and she just wasn't able to do that stuff. And And how long a time did this develop over? Relatively short, maybe three to four months. And it precipitated, I mean, she came in the hospital over the Christmas New Year holiday. And her initial chest x-ray was very dramatic. And then, of course, being admitted to the pulmonary service, they got a CT, they bronched her, and then they called us at the time. What was her life situation, her family, work? She's married to a fellow faculty member, not in the College of Medicine, but in a different college. She has one daughter. In fact, one of the things in our initial discussion was that her daughter was getting married about 14 or 15 months after the diagnosis. And one of the things the patient we had a long discussion about is, I would like to be alive and I would like to be in good shape for my daughter's wedding. And so that was kind of one of those things where you say, well, this is a lady who was a never smoker, a lady with adenocarcinoma, And you would hope that she would harbor an EGFR mutation and would have great sensitivity to a TKI. Now, when you saw her, how long had it been since she had found out the diagnosis? Within a day or so. Actually, she was still in the hospital. What was her state of mind? Like most patients with cancer, she was completely overwhelmed at the time. You know, for her to go in the mid-50s and looking at all the usual life events you are looking forward to at that time in your life to being told you have stage 4 cancer and you're very symptomatic from a pulmonary point of view. Her state of mind was, I think she was very fearful and frightened about the diagnosis, feeling that unless something happened to her disease to control it, that she was rapidly going downhill with regard to her symptoms. Her husband was obviously about the same age, and he had trips planned to London to give talks and this and that, and he's a very busy professional guy, and so their world was kind of spinning. Her daughter lived down the Atlanta area. And I had talked with her. She came up for a few visits. And we had talked about all these things about prognosis, treatment, so on and so forth. What was it like for you to interact with her and her husband and her daughter in this devastating situation? Well, I mean, you know, part of, I think, what patients struggle with before they see the oncologist is they don't know what the plan is and they don't know what the options are. And I think that it's often a sense of relief when you finally see someone who has experience with the disease and comes in and said, we've done this before. These are the options. This is my recommendation. This is what we need to get done before we start. We actually got her out of the hospital with a plan. I had talked with her about what I think is kind of the niche lung cancer population, which is the never smoker with adenocarcinoma. And in those patients in general, although you can never predict on an individual case basis, in general, they do better than the average lung cancer patient. So you were conveying a somewhat sense of cautious optimism to her? Yeah, because, you know, most patients, these patients were internet savvy. And when you go on the internet and you read about lung cancer, it's pretty depressing. 
You know, you see some figures and survival figures and average length of life and those things, and you don't know where you are in that whole thing. And at least with the never smokers in general, they tend to have a more favorable survival profile. You know, and it's interesting too, you know, people a lot of times when I think about metastatic solid tumors, they think, you know, how devastating lung cancer is and how optimistic breast cancer yeah. is. And we have trastuzumab and hormone therapy and bevacizumab. But breast cancer, the median survival of metastatic breast cancer is a little bit more than two years. Right. That's not all that great. Certainly, that's a little bit longer than lung cancer, but well, it's uh, yeah, not but, great. You know, a good point, though, Neil, is that if you look at the never smokers on the tribute trial in stage four disease, their median survival was 22.5 months. But I mean, globally, just looking at this whole situation, it's just not easy to deal with metastatic solid tumor. Right. And the concept in this particular case that there might be a targeted agent you right. know, that might be useful in her particular situation was obviously news to them. They were kind of thinking it's going to be chemotherapy, it's going to be this and that and everything. And when we talked to them about that there is all of lung cancer and then there's this 10% that fit into a slightly different category of the never smoker, which they, you know, were not aware of. You know, they had dealt with all the issues about how did I get lung cancer if I was a never smoker, those sorts of things. Were you able to identify in these initial meetings what her greatest concerns were? You mentioned her daughter being married. She was sick, short yeah. of breath. Was she having any other symptoms that were related to the tumor? It was principally cough and shortness of breath. In fact, I've known her for 26 months now, and a very reliable indicator of her disease status has been her cough. And what about the rest of her staging workup? Did she have tumor anywhere else? No, she was negative. I mean, she does now, but at the time, she had really disease confined to the lungs. So she had presented with bilateral, widespread, symptomatic adenocarcinoma proven by biopsy. Now, how did you determine that this was lung cancer as opposed to some other adenocarcinoma, breast, colon, et cetera? We used the clinical presentation and the radiographic findings, the absence on staging of any other known primary, the staging and physical examination. And then in this particular case, if I remember correctly, she ended up being TTF1 positive, which is typical of adenocarcinomas of the lung. It's a good marker for a lung primary. Can you explain what that is? It's a protein that's identified by immunohistochemistry that is positive in the majority of adenocarcinomas of the lung in thyroid cancer and in some small cells. And so this is a situation where a positive test is helpful. A negative test doesn't rule it out. We certainly see a number of cases that were convinced are lung cancer, but were TTF1 negative. What was her reaction to being diagnosed with lung cancer having been a non-smoker? And what are the typical kind of emotional reactions you see in non-smokers? It's usually initial kind of shock and disbelief because of the historical linking of you've got to be a smoker to get this disease. And we know that you don't have to be a smoker to get this disease. We don't necessarily understand the ideologic issues in the never smoking population. We also know that there are people who smoke all their lives and never get lung cancer. And so there are clearly issues of susceptibility to the carcinogenic effect of tobacco that we don't understand as much as we should. There are clearly patients who are at high risk of getting lung cancer, whether they smoke or not. There are patients who are genetically at low risk of getting lung cancer, whether they smoke or not. So, you know, these things are not as well defined as they should be at this particular point. You know, it's interesting. If there was no such thing as tobacco and no tobacco-related illnesses, you would then still have quote, non-smoking lung cancer, and it would be a fairly common disease if you and a fig- fairly high 
cause of mortality. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about it's 10% of a very large number. Still, it's 160,000 people yeah. dying as lung cancer. Right, Amazing. Right, Every right. time I think about that, I can't I believe it. And, you know, it's the number two cancer in both genders. And so it's still without smoking would be still a major cancer, in my opinion. So this is a patient who's presenting with non-surgically curable, non-small cell lung cancer, adenocarcinoma, symptomatic. Can you talk a little bit about how you start to think through your clinical algorithms to a patient who's presenting with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer today or in the last couple of years yep. when she was diagnosed compared to maybe five years ago? Right. I think that, you know, I view the first-line lung cancer population as three subsets, really. It's the patients who fall into this category of never or a remote light smoker, the patients who are eligible to get bevacizumab, and then those patients who are not eligible because of the risk of the drug. And so I kind of teach our fellows that there's really three flavors of lung cancer. Then you have to remember that in the never smoker, there are considerations of bevacizumab or not also. So you could really break it down into almost four subsets if you you will. So let's go through that because that's really a new concept, uh, mm-hmm. just again over the last couple of years and how people sort of think through their approach to this situation and why you basically said what you just did. Mm-hmm. And of course, one of the things that you just mentioned is that one of the first things you look at is would this patient have met the criteria to go into the ECOG study right. that looked at bevacizumab or Avastin? Can you go back through what the eligibility for that study was and what they were looking at and what they saw? The primary eligibility was related to histology, and that was in patients who had non-squamous histology. You could have a little bit of squamous cell, but it could not be the predominant histology. And now, what was the reason for that? Why were the people with squamous pushed out of the study? In a prior randomized phase two trial, they had identified a unique toxicity with this drug, and that was the observation that in four of 13 squamous cell patients treated with bevacizumab, they had major life-threatening, in some cases, fatal pulmonary hemorrhages. So the link was between the use of bevacizumab in histology. So then when they got to this study, the randomized study of bevacizumab or not, those patients didn't get in. The squamous cell patients didn't get in. It really puts the pressure on how we get biopsies, how our pathologists interpret things so that we can define that risk. That really has changed in clinical practice also. So in this case, so far, this woman still is eligible because she had adenocarcinoma. What were the other reasons that you would get pushed out of the ECOG-BEV study? If you have brain metastases. And what was the reason for that? Well, very early in the development of bevacizumab, they had a brain hemorrhage. And so it was decided for safety reasons to just exclude those patients with brain metastases. Now, we have to realize that in lung cancer, you know, if you start looking for brain mets in the first-line setting, roughly 15% of patients are going to have brain mets. Now, ECOG 4599 has made me change my practice in terms of what I do. Prior to the choice of bevacizumab or not, if a patient was asymptomatic and had no central nervous system findings, I wouldn't necessarily scan their head. Now, if I'm thinking about using bevacizumab, I'm doing a brain MRI. How about in this woman? Did you look at her brain? Yep. She had a brain MRI. It was negative. So again, number two, number she's two still in. Number two is off. Third would be hemoptysis. She did not have any hemoptysis, and that's obviously taking a good history. 
And then fourth would be performance status. We were convinced she was a PS1 at the time. She was clearly symptomatic. Can you define, go back through what the performance status criteria are? Performance status zero on the ECOG scale. And there are a couple different scales, but we generally in this country use the ECOG scale. It's a zero to four scale. A PS0 is an asymptomatic patient. A PS1 is a patient who has symptoms but is still active, maybe gainfully employed, able to take care of themselves, not needing any assistance. A PS2 is a patient who is still up and about in doing things more than 12 hours a day, might require a little bit of help with this and that, but is clearly more symptomatic and a bit more compromised. PS3 are patients who are more compromised, are really spending the majority of their time at rest, whether that's in bed or on the couch or in the lazy boy chair, are really requiring assistance with activities of daily living. But now this woman is in the hospital on oxygen. Yes, but after she was on oxygen and we kind of maximized some of her pulmonary toilet and that sort of thing, she was able to go home. So she improved. Yeah, she improved with good pulmonary management. So at that point, just with that approach, she was a PS1. Yep. And again, the ECOG study, what was the performance that is required? Zero to one. Again, so she now meets the criteria. She could have gone in that study. She could have gone in that study. And what did that study show? That study showed that if you added bevacizumab to carboplatinum and paclitaxel, that there was an improvement in the primary endpoint of overall survival associated with a 20% risk reduction of death as a result of getting bevacizumab. It showed more than a doubling of objective response rates in an improvement in the time to progression of your disease. So it was really positive by all endpoints. The most important endpoint is survival. Patients are alive or they're not alive, and that was the reason for its approval in lung cancer. And just to sort of put this in context, there have obviously been tons of trials in this situation looking at different combinations of chemotherapeutic agents, et cetera. What was the advance in this situation? Was it a minimal advance, modest, you know, significant? How would you sort of qualitatively characterize it? Given the run of negative trials that we've had, 10 or 12 of them, that did not show an advantage for a targeted agent, here we have bevacizumab that my personal opinion is that it was a significant step forward for the right patient. What do we know about the mechanism of action of bevacizumab and why this benefit was seen? Bevacizumab is a monoclonal antibody, and when you're an antibody, you have a very specific target. In this case, it's vascular endothelial growth factor. This is a factor that's produced by tumor cells to induce blood vessels to start growing into the tumor so the tumor is fed oxygen and nutrients and all those sorts of things. It is the principal angiogenic factor that tumors seem to use, at least initially in the course. So there's much preclinical data in animal data, xenograph data, that's very convincing that VEGF as a target would be very important in the human system. And I think we've seen in colorectal cancer and now in breast cancer and in lung cancer that this drug does have activity. And it's interesting because in all those tumors, I asked investigators, you know, what do you think is going on? Why do you see the benefit? And one of the things we hear, in addition to what you just described, which is a more classic approach of anti-angiogenesis, is the question of does it in some way improve the activity of chemotherapy, right. a greater access of chemotherapy to the tumor? What do you think about 
about that idea? I have to believe it because almost universally, when you look at response rates to chemotherapy, like in the lung cancer situation, they're more than doubled. And so this agent must be allowing chemotherapy to penetrate the tumor better. And it may be that it has a normalization effect on tumor interstitial pressure and that it gives the chemo an advantage to penetrate the tumor. But as you point out, I mean, there is this theory of normalization and interstitial tumor pressure. And I've always felt, well, if that's true, then we should see increased response rates of chemotherapy in the presence of anti-angiogenic agents. And I think the data is bearing that out. The other thing is the question of using chemo plus BEV or BEV alone. There are a couple tumors, ovary, renal, where they've seen pretty good responses to BEV alone. What about BEV alone in lung cancer? There's very limited data. In the original phase two trial, the control arm was carbotaxel. And the patients that were randomized to just the chemotherapy alone, when they progressed, they were allowed to receive bevacizumab as a single agent. And to my knowledge, that remains the only single agent experience of bevacizumab in this setting. There were 32 patients that were on that arm. 19 of them crossed over to bevacizumab. There were no responses, objective responses seen. However, I must point out that the median survival on the carbotaxol arm was 14.9 months. So many of us believe that this chemo followed by anti-angiogenic therapy as, dare I call it, maintenance therapy had an effect on the survival profile. Now, in this ECOG study, what were the downsides? What were the side effects and toxicities when the BEV was added? The principal toxicities in combination with carboplatinum and taxol were an increase in neutropenia. There was a increase in febrile neutropenia from 2% to 5% on the bevacizumab arm. There was the risk of hypertension, proteinuria. And, you know, we've talked about the selection factors. That was designed to create a situation where the risk of hemorrhage would be lessened. On the control arm, there were about 2% of patients who had various hemorrhages. About half of those were related to pulmonary hemorrhage. On the bevacizumab arm, the rate of hemorrhage was, I think, 4.7%, and about half of those were related to pulmonary hemorrhages. So you can use these clinical selection factors to reduce the risk of hemorrhage. We have to realize that pulmonary hemorrhage is part of the disease of lung cancer sometimes. It did occur on the control arm, but it did occur with increased rates on the bevacizumab arm. And this is why I think we have to be careful about selection factors with this drug. And I guess all of those things, what I see for all these tumors is the hypertension usually seems like not a major problem. Yeah, the hypertension and the proteinuria are usually not major problems. And really, I guess it's really only lung where we've seen you know, the issue of potentially fatal pulmonary hemorrhages right. compared to other tumors. Right. And even though it's quite uncommon, and I guess what would you tell a patient, a few percent risk? Or? Yeah, on 45.99, I think it was 2.3%. So I say 1 in 50 so 1 in 50 certainly is not a very common problem. But on the other hand, you're talking about something mighty serious. What are the patient's reaction when you talk about that? I think most of the patients, you know, I mean, we talk about it in light of the potential advantage. And I have been continuing to be relatively selective in patients. And my judgment is that in the carefully selected patient, the potential benefit of the drug far outweighs the risk. We do educate patients that if you start to see a little bit of blood, don't wait till next Monday to tell us. Tell us Wednesday when you have it, because we get those patients in early. I'm much quicker to recommend radiation therapy. Radiation therapy is great 
for control of hemoptysis. So we try to educate our patients, and a lot of this is done with our nurses because they're usually taking the first call about if you see something, if there's been a change in your sputum quality, you need to let us know now. You can't just kind of bring it up, and you need to come in and be evaluated. And we've treated a number of these patients with radiotherapy, give them a little bit of break. It's not necessarily disease progression, but you get their palliative dose of radiotherapy in, their hemoptysis improves, and then you go on with treatment. And I guess the issue, too, is what is going on in these patients? I've heard people speculate that maybe this is actually a manifestation of tumor response. Yeah, exactly. I think in many cases it may be. Um, so the tumor responds so rapidly that somehow the tumor sort of falls apart? or Yeah, yeah the integrity of the tumor and the vasculature is disrupted. And, you know, we've seen with the patients that we've treated with bevacizumab, we have a clinical trial in stage 3 disease in which we're allowing squamous cell patients to go on that trial. You know, I've seen some personal dramatic cavitary responses with one or two cycles of this drug and patients not have fatal hemorrhage. So, And I guess they've tried to tease out, you know, how do you figure out who these few percent of patients are? And I guess one thing that's been talked about is where the tumor is in the lung. Has that really panned out? No, it hasn't. And I think this is a big issue with oncologists because, you know, I hear a lot of people or get a lot of phone calls about this patient has a central lesion. Should I worry? And centrality was not an inclusion or exclusion criteria in 4599. And therefore, I haven't let it influence me. As best as you can tease this out, for an uncommon toxicity in a retrospective fashion, Tumor location does not seem to be the issue. It's really a histologic issue. And I guess the other thing that they did talk about is this issue of cavitation. Mm -hmm. What exactly is cavitation and how would it relate to the issue of hemorrhage? Cavitation is, you know, when you look at a patient's chest CT scan and you see this big hunk of tumor in there, and then in the middle of the tumor you see air. So the tumor has somehow cavitated, if you will, whether it outgrew its blood supply and it necrosed and you have an empty space in there, which is what the cavity is. You know, when I was a medical student, I was taught that cavitation correlates with squamous histology. And so I think that there was a suggestion in the 4599 database that baseline cavitation might be an issue. Well, baseline cavitation to me suggests predominantly squamous histology. Hmm. So again, it gets back to the histology. You know, I was just sitting here thinking about this algorithm that you're kind of carving out and how you're really looking at two factors. One is sort of this non-smoking mutation idea, which we'll talk about in a second. And the other is this issue of bevacizumab. In a way, it kind of reminds me, when we talk about breast cancer, nowadays the two things you're going to look at are ER and HER2. Mm -hmm. And that really drives the algorithm. And you kind of have four subsets, you know, ER positive, HER2 positive, et cetera, et cetera. So if you kind of think that what you're saying is the, the biologics, and we'll talk about the TKIs like erlotinib, and the anti-angiogenics, specifically bevacizumab, is creating these two buckets that are creating kind of four subsets. Mm -hmm. Now, this woman sort of sounds kind of like ER positive, HER2 positive. She's both eligible for the BEV study as well as falling into the other category. Correct. Now, maybe we should also backtrack a little bit into this issue of Mm non-smoking and what that means biologically. Mm -hmm. And basically, I guess this ties into EGFR. Right. Can you explain what that is and sort of how it all works? EGFR stands for epidermal growth factor receptor. This is a protein that's on the surface of the cell. It is a proliferative pathway, if you stimulate this particular protein with epidermal growth factor, for instance, it causes cell growth. It's a way to turn on angiogenesis. 
It prohibits or avoids a programmed cell death. And it also allows the cell to have an increased metastatic potential. So it is an important pathway from a biologic point of view. It appears that in never smokers, they have a disease that's much more EGFR dependent or EGFR directed, if you will. In the typical smoker, say it's had 40, 50 pack years, they have a lot of mutations. And some of those mutations, like KRAS mutations, are really mutations of resistance. In the never smoker, I've always thought of it as kind of a more molecularly pure cancer, if you will. It really has one pathway or one gas pedal that's driving the cancer. And so when you direct therapy at that one pathway, the results are dramatic. If we know the pathway. If you know the pathway. Now, and then these 10%, I guess that's what the thinking that is? That appears to be the predominant pathway because if you look at these 10% of patients, depending upon what part of the world you're from, your incidence of or likelihood of having what we refer to as an EGFR activating mutation is in the range of 30 to 40 percent to more than 50 percent in Asian populations. And so if you have this activating mutation, this is a mutation that really kind of turns this pathway on. And what are the agents that target that pathway? In general, EGFR targeting agents that are out there now are drugs like Erlotinib or Tarceva. This is a orally administered small molecule. It inhibits the internal aspect of this receptor, the so-called tyrosine kinase domain. Then we have a couple of antibodies that target the external part of it. Uh, so one, this EGFR receptor sort of starts on the outside and goes into the yeah, inside. Yeah. And the, the erlotinib sort of hits it on the inside. Right. Same as gefitinib. Same as gefitinib or erisa. What's the difference in your view in terms of how those two drugs work? I think they work very similarly. And I think that there are some minor differences between them. But I, you know, in the absence of direct comparisons, I think that they're both similar drugs. But those agents are working inside in inside the receptor. The cell, and yeah. then the antibodies like cetuximab would be on the outside. Yeah in panitubumab or vectabixia, yeah, would be on the outside. So one of them kind of attempts to turn off the light switch inside the cell. The other antibodies prevent the gas from hitting the gas pedal, if you will. They kind of block the receptor binding sites. Now, what do we know about the effects of the TKIs, erlotinib and gefitinib, overall in lung cancer, and then specifically in this population of non-smokers? Overall, in the early studies, they were initially tested both in refractory disease, and we learned that somewhere between 10 and 20% of patients had objective responses. About a third of patients had stable disease. So the conclusion early on was that these were active drugs. Two paths were taken. One was taking both Arisa and Tarceva and combining it with chemotherapy in the first-line setting. We had four trials, four large trials, that really showed that the addition of either Arisa or Tarceva to carbotaxol or cisgem did not improve survival, which was disappointing. But I think that we understand more today about the interplay between chemotherapy and EGFR inhibition, and maybe in retrospect, it wasn't a good idea. The other tack that the drugs took was looking in refractory disease, and two major trials were done that compared either ERISA or Tarceva to a placebo or a best supportive care, principally done outside the United States. The Tarceva trial, BR21, was a positive trial in terms of survival. Tarceva did improve the survival profile over placebo. It also, actually, I think an important aspect of that trial was they looked at time to symptom progression, and they looked at cough, pain, 
and shortness of breath, and Tarceva had a positive effect. So my conclusion is it makes patients live longer and live better as a result of getting that compared to placebo. The story with ERISA, a bit more complicated. I think their trial eligibility was a little different than the Tarceva trial. It ended up being a negative trial, although in certain populations, like the Asians and the adenos, there was more of a trend. In the never smokers also, more of a trend. No, there's been a lot of attempts to try to find so-called enriched populations mm-hmm. where you would see a higher response rate than mm-hmm. what you just described. What's been the success there in terms of trying to identify people who have more sensitivity? Yeah, the observation in the early studies and even in the late studies with both of these drugs, Arisa and Tarceva, is that there was a certain clinical profile that seemed to have higher response rates and perhaps a better survival effect. And they were based on gender, and it was females better than males, histology, adenocarcinoma versus others, ethnicity, Asian populations greater than Caucasian populations, and then smoking status. And it was really the true never smoker. Now, we define the never smoker as less than 100 cigarettes in your lifetime. These were patients that had the most dramatic effect. What we've learned is that these clinical selection factors of gender, histology, ethnicity, and smoking status enrich the population for these EGFR-activating mutations. And I think one of the... what exactly are those? Because that was just discovered in the last couple of years. 2004, I think, was the first publications. Now, these are changes in the structure of the protein. This is in the tumor. This is in the tumor. These are tumor-specific and seem to be relatively specific to lung cancer. I'm not sure, you know, another EGFR-driven disease is head and neck cancer, but I'm not sure that these mutations have been described in head and neck cancer. So when you look in the tumor, you see these mutations. Yeah, the question is, these mutations are either substitutions or deletions of various parts of the protein that really turn the protein on. They activate this pathway that we described before of growth and angiogenesis and all these sorts of things. And these are more common in non-smokers in these other populations. right. And just to put that in context, I mean, to my, I always like looking at different tumors to compare, but it looks to me, I mean, for example, if you give trastuzumab to a patient with breast cancer as a HER2 positive tumor, they don't all respond. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, you're probably looking at maybe 30, 40% response in metastatic disease. What's the response rate when you have these EGFR mutations to, for example, erlotinib? In the 70, 75% range. So really pretty impressive bump up in the response rate. Right. All right, well, let's go back to this patient. So again, it kind of reminds me of ER positive or HER2 positive. You kind of have two routes you could go with her, right. either erlotinib because of the fact she's a non-smoker. Now, did you get her tumor tested for mutations? Well, no, I mean, we considered that. But again, one of the things that we had available to her was a trial through the CLGB that looked at this special population of never smokers. Now, the randomization in that trial is between erlotinib alone as a single agent or erlotinib in combination with carbotaxel. So there were two arms. As part of that trial, we had to send her tissue blocks actually up to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute where they're doing the correlative studies of that. So her EGFR protein will be sequenced, and ultimately we will know. But we did not do that initially because we were interested in her participation in the CLGB trial. Just taking a step back away from the research for a second, looking at her clinical situation, which I'm sure you did anyhow, you would have the option of using erlotinib. And in this study, she'd get erlotinib Mm -hmm. either way. Right. 
or to use bevacizumab right. with chemotherapy and maybe to use all three together. Right. How would you compare those options in a patient like this? Again, a non-protocol decision. Yeah, no, that's the million-dollar question. In fact, we had a CLGB meeting a week ago, and a large part of our discussion at that core meeting was what do we design the next trial for? And I think many of us feel like that's a very central question about what is the best approach. And it also raises the issue of sequencing, you know, where maybe these patients can get chemo and Avastin and get an advantage there. And then maybe when they're done, we should give them Tarceva as part of maintenance. And that might be the best strategy. Maybe they should all be given together. I'm sure also there would be this question of, okay, would Erlotinib either on this trial or outside of this trial, be a good choice in this situation? What about chemo bevacizumab? What about giving all three? I don't know if they actually asked you, got into that, but how would you compare those options for a patient who sounds a little bit scary, have a young woman like this with so much tumor in her lungs? Yeah, I think we have very little comparative data. So you have to look at the data that's available that we have from these trials and kind of make a judgment. I have been most impressed with the impact of EGFR inhibition in the true never smoker. When you look at the hazard ratios for patients who are never smokers, either in the second line or first line trials, either as single agents or in combinations, the hazard ratios have been around 0.4. And so... I mean, 60% reduction. Yeah, yeah, that to me, I mean, remember the hazard ratio for bevacizumab. Although we don't know it in the never smokers, the overall hazard ratio was 0.8. So that's a 20% reduction. Here we have a 60% reduction. So right now, I think the pressures on Avastin in this population, not necessarily EGFR. I guess there also is the issue of potential side effects and toxicity. What do you say to a person facing erlotinib? Yeah, I mean, erlotinib is a once a day pill you take. The principal toxicity is a rash and diarrhea. Even at full dose, 150 milligrams, only fewer than 10% have a grade three or four either rash or diarrhea, which is usually manageable. Fewer than 1% of patients have to discontinue the drug in this setting. And so I think the principal toxicities with appropriate prospective management really don't make this drug prohibitive in the majority of patients. I think the other issue is going the other route with chemo bevacizumab in terms of quality of life. You mentioned the potential issue with hemorrhage, but certainly quality of life-wise, mm-hmm. bevacizumab doesn't have much of a negative impact, but mostly where you're getting the negative quality of life impact is the chemo. Right. So that you made a decision, I guess, that you were going to go down the Olatnib road. In this case, it was part of a clinical trial. What was she randomized to? She was randomized to Olatnib alone. How did she so, feel when she found that out? You know, obviously, if we've put a number of patients on this trial. And the chemo was Carbotac- Carbotaxel. It was really designed on the basis of the tribute trial, which used Carbotaxel in that setting. Again, getting back to what perhaps is the most important drug in this setting. And when I talk to these never smokers, I say, I think Tarceva should be part of your initial management. I'm convinced of that. The fact that they're going to get Tarceva in both arms, she was not really bothered by that issue of one way. And the other thing we say to patients is that even though you may be randomized to one arm, either on or off a clinical trial, we are interested in making you better. And we generally make that judgment within six weeks or so, and we can change therapy or go to something else if things aren't working out. So she got randomized to Erlotinib, but what happened? She had what we refer to as kind of the lights-out response. Within a couple weeks, 
Her cough was gone. Her breathing was better. She was off oxygen. After about four to six weeks, she began thinking that maybe I can ride my bike again and go out and walk and those sorts of things. Her first CT scan was at the six-week point, showed a dramatic response, nearly complete response. And again, symptomatically, she went very quickly in a matter of weeks from being very symptomatic to being largely asymptomatic and thinking that this was a great thing because she did have rash. Where Um, was it and how bothersome was it? It was principally face, upper trunk, chest, and back. We have some dermatologists at our place that are very interested in the management. We had her see the dermatologist, the rash. When did it come on? How long? Uh, Almost exactly a week after starting, which is very typical. And was she uncomfortable? She was more uncomfortable cosmetically right. than she was, you know, medically. Right. You know, this was more of a badge of treatment, if you will, right. than it was that she was in trouble with any sort of thing. So we got that under control relatively quickly. I'm sure she and her husband were quite happy about oh, what was they, going they were on. obviously ecstatic and this persisted. Her performance status continued in her I like to refer to it as her reconditioning. You know, she was obviously going downhill and was in bed a lot before this, and now she was trying to get herself back in shape. But she did, and she was on single agent or lot dip for about a year. And then she redeveloped her cough. And at that time, on her CT scan, she showed evidence of progression, again, just in the chest, per se. So what did you do at that point? We switched her to Avastin-based therapy. I actually gave her, stopped the erlotinib and gave her carbotaxol Avastin. She had another response. Relatively quickly within the first couple cycles, her cough went away. Objectively, her tumor got better in the chest. We gave her, I think, four cycles of carbotaxol and continued the bevacizumab as kind of maintenance, if you will, much like they did in ECOG 4599. So we, Blood we, pressure is okay? I added hydrochlorothiazide, but with 25 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide, she was fine. Not had any problems with proteinuria. She's not had any problems with hemoptysis. How long was she on the bev, or is she still on still the bev? Still on the bev. She's still on the bev. Wow, how yeah. much longer? How long? Let's see, I met her in early 06, so it's since early 07. So it's been, however, She over comes here. in every three weeks? Yeah, I mean, we, we've had another complication with her, and that is that she developed around September or so of last year, she actually developed carcinomatous meningitis. Wow. And interestingly, we are seeing this more and more in this type of population in which they have the clinical characteristics that would predict TKI sensitivity. They have these dramatic responses like their mutation patients. And then since they do so well systemically, there's this evolving paradigm of the brain brain relapse. And it's not necessarily parenchymal brain mets, it's often leptomeningeal disease. And you see the tumor outside of the brain still controlled? Yes. So like in her, so in her situation, you're... Right. So we're faced with what to do. I mean, my historical experience with carcinomatous meningitis in this disease is not very good in the literature. What symptoms did she have? She had double vision, right. a little bit of headache, and we ended up treating her with whole brain because of the base of the skull thing. She got a little bit better from Stop the... Stop the bev? No, we continued the BEV um, because of her systemic Right, disease. it was controlling this. Yeah, and so we didn't quite know what to do. I can tell you what we did do. And one of the thinking, and there was a very interesting case 
that was written up in the Journal of Clinical Oncology by the folks at the Dana-Farber. And this was in a similar patient who developed brain disease and also leptomeningeal disease. And they demonstrated that the disease that was in the brain still had the presence of the activating mutation. And it was suggesting that you just weren't getting enough TKI into the spinal fluid. And that actually has led to a clinical trial at the Dana-Farber looking at high-dose ERISA, pulse doses of ERISA to try to force the penetration into the brain. Wow, fascinating. Yeah. It's really amazing to hear this story and think about how she would have been managed just like four or five years ago, chemo. I think it would have been a much different outcome. So just a couple questions about other agents that are sort of, you know, maybe going to be considered as part of this new movement towards biologics. We talked about EGFR and VEGF or anti-angiogenesis. We're seeing some agents now that attack both pathways One being Zactima or ZD6474 is an example. What is that and how does it work? The Zactima is, again, a pill. It has properties that inhibit the VEGF pathway, in this case the receptor, not the ligand like Avastin does. It also has some cross-reactivity with the epidermal growth factor receptor, much like Tarceva. And it's a TKI. And it's a TKI, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, it works similar to those drugs. But it's working on two different major pathways. Working on two different major pathways. Now, there may be, you know, I think I've always looked at that drug, and you have to make a decision. Is it a better VEGF drug? Is it a better EGFR drug? Is it good at both? I mean, my read is there's some dose dependency. Right. At higher doses, this is a better EGFR drug, the question I think many of us have is, even at the higher doses, is it as good an EGFR drug as Arisa or Tarceva? Do you see EGFR side effects and VEGF side effects? Yeah. So you see both? Yeah. Yeah. Bleeding? With, at least to my knowledge, now there are a number of these other TKIs like Sutent and Nexavar and those sorts of things and another AZ drug called 2171. What does that do? That's more of a pure VEGF inhibitor. In drugs like the Sutent has multiple targets, VEGF, and in Sutent's case, a platelet-derived growth factor receptor, or PDGFR, which was felt to be an important target in cancers also. There have been bleeding episodes associated with these TKIs, very similar to the Avastin story. So the bleeding issue may be more of a VEGF class effect than it is related to EGFR. In fact, I think, I don't know that anyone's described a hemorrhage with a drug like Tarceva. So what's been seen in terms of anti-tumor impact of drugs, you know, like Zactima or 2171 Resentin, I think. Right, right. Zactima, there have been a couple of randomized phase two trials. One was comparing it to ERISA. One was adding it to docetaxel versus docetaxel with placebo. These trials were both positive trials in the sense that Zactima seemed to add to the activity of the docetaxel in the second-line setting. And also compared to ERISA, it seemed to have an advantage with the time-to-disease progression. Now, both of these Phase two trials have led to Phase three trials, registrational trials that are not yet known, but well on their way to being completed, if not completed already. Now, this woman received carbopaclitaxel, bevacizumab, really probably the most common combination used in first-line metastatic disease. 
in breast cancer, we've seen the evolution of NAB paclitaxel starting right. to replace, in some situations, paclitaxel. What about NAB in lung cancer? NAB, I think, is an active drug. I think the technology of binding the taxol to albumin makes a lot of sense in terms of getting rid of the vehicle that we have to dissolve taxol in, the cremophore, the alcohol. It makes it a safer drug, a more convenient drug. You can give it in 10, 15 minutes rather than three hours, which we typically do. We've done a study in lung cancer. We're actually reporting the results at a poster at the upcoming ESMO meeting in April to show that whether you use the NAB paclitaxel on an every three-week or weekly schedule, it seems to be active. There is an ongoing or just starting phase three trial comparing carbotaxol to carbonab paclitaxel. In the case of the nab paclitaxel, it's actually a weekly administration versus an every three-week administration. That's a phase three trial just starting up at this point. And I guess in breast cancer, there's been some suggestion maybe it's more active yeah. from an anti-tumor perspective yeah. than paclitaxel, maybe even docetaxel. Yeah. I think to me, it's, I mean, the theory is, is that, you know, most tumors are like an albumin sponge. And if you've bound your drug to albumin and the tumor is sucking up albumin, it's going to suck up your drug. So I think in breast cancer, it looks like it is more active. So this woman is now a little bit more than two years out. Right. And what's her quality of life? What's her lifestyle like? Actually, we've documented a radiographic response of her carcinomatous meningitis. We've also documented on serial spinal taps that her protein's gotten better and she's eradicated her cells. I didn't tell you what I did with her. You're going to tell me you put her back on her lot now, right? Yeah, but in (laughs) in a unique way. Oh, really? What I'm doing is, and this is based upon some work that our brain tumor group is doing. I thought you were going to put it in a Maya reservoir. No, no, I haven't done that. (laughs) But what I've done is I've given her 600 milligrams wow. of Tarceva twice a week. Don't do this at home, folks. Don't do this at home, folks. Although, if you look at an abstract by Vince Miller at ASCO, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, Vince demonstrated that you could give 1,500 milligrams wow. of Tarceva as a one-time dose every three weeks. Wow. So we can give these pulse doses. And in fact, that's what I started to do with her in combination with Avastin. Wow. And she responded. So the theory is that if you give these pulse doses, it hmm. leaks into the CSF. The CSF tumor burden still has the activating mutation, and she's responded. So what's the exact schedule you gave her? What I gave her is 600 milligrams, or what I'm still giving her, 600 milligrams, essentially every four days. And what about side effects with a? She has had no worse side effects than what she had when she was on 150 Rash. Uh, yeah, a little bit of rash, although the rash is not as bad with this as it was with the 150. Did it ever get better with the 150 over time or the rash? stayed the same? Yeah, yeah. the rash, I mean, you know, my experience, the rash has this flare phenomenon. Seven, eight days later, patients call you, they have this terrible rash. And then, of course, we do the typical things. We do the topical things. We do the systemic minocycline and stuff like that. It gets better. And then it kind of burns out a little bit. And I don't know if it's because our treatment is effective or just the natural history. It just gets better. I tend to try as best I can to treat through the rash. I don't necessarily stop Tarceva unless it's very severe rash. And you do have this burnout phenomenon. And it gets controlled with the usual things. So what's her state of mind or her spouse's state of mind or daughter's state of mind and your state of mind after these two years? Well, her daughter got married almost a year ago, wow. which was victory. And as an oncologist, I would say probably one of the most rewarding visits I had with a patient because her husband and her came back from the wedding and basically said, 
we had a wonderful week. We had a wonderful rehearsal dinner. I enjoyed being in the shape that I'm in to see my daughter get married. I felt well. I participated in everything. It was wonderful. She was on the Bev or a lot? No, at that time, she had had the response to CarboTax Avastin. And so we were continuing her on Avastin. But she had had the nice year. Her rash was gone. Yeah, her rash was gone and she was on hydrochlorothiazide. (laughs) That was the only adverse reaction she had. She lost her hair with the CarboTaxol, but that wasn't a big issue to her. How do you think it affected the way she saw her own life? I think in this situation and the initial visits with her, I mean, obviously the marriage of her daughter was a major thing in her life. Really? So she's desperately sick in the hospital and thinking about that. Yeah, it was. They have one child Hmm. and this was it. She wanted to be there. Hmm. And in fact, she told me recently that, you know, obviously she didn't think that she would do this well for this long. And so all this time after the wedding, nearly a year ago, she considers this bonus time. And it's been bonus time. And we've had some ups and downs with the carcinomatous meningitis. But this lady recently got on a plane and flew to Chicago and was able to do that. So to me, that's victory. Now 26 months and through several lines of treatment and those sorts of things. So it's been a real lesson in terms of using the targeted therapies that we have. In my case, using them in a bit of a novel way with the pulse dosing of the Tarsiva, but being convinced that there's a clear effect. I mean, we've got MRI evidence and CSF evidence of a response, and symptomatically, she's better. The new biology of lung cancer. The new biology of lung cancer.